I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversation, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. We have another great episode for today. My guest is Amy Gardner, and this is just a really fun episode. The dialogue is back and forth, and it's just interesting. We talk about exercise and eating disorders and Amy's new book, I Move, which is fantastic. So as always, let's just jump right in. Here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am really excited and really honored to have our guest on today, Amy Gardner. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. It's it's really a thrill and I and I love when I'm when I'm doing interviews with people that live relatively close to me in the same city and so it's fun it's always good to see people that I know in this situation. So Amy, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am a registered dietitian, a certified eating disorder dietitian and a yoga teacher and I own a group practice, Metro West Nutrition which has recently become a multidisciplinary practice. So we just added on a psychotherapist and an occupational therapy consultant. And I also recently published the book, I Move, Helping Your Clients Heal from Compulsive Exercise, which in which I share my own personal recovery story and scientific research about compulsive exercise and modalities that I've collected through the years through training and experience working with clients in their own recovery that I found to be really helpful um, with this particular issue. And I'm really excited to introduce this resource to the community and uh, base. I have both uh, iMove groups that I'm leading in my practice uh, for participants, which are going really well. And I'm also about to launch a clinical training so that other people can use this method in their own work. Can you also share with listeners, there's a workbook that goes along with it, correct? Yes. So just say a little bit about that. And then I'm going to get a little more into the book, but I want to make sure we share all of it because Amy, I can't even tell you, first of all, I suffered from compulsive exercise in my eating disorder. I have many clients that struggle with it. It's it's a big component and I don't think it's often addressed. So tell say a little bit about the workbook and then we'll get more into everything. Absolutely. So the workbook came after I wrote the book as a companion to the iMove groups I'm leading. And we use it in, in the group 
to help navigate our our uh, process. So through this, so we do. There's some an educational component to the iMove group, and then there's a lot of experiential work. But what I'm finding is that participants really like to understand how these different things we're doing in group are impacting them and what the the background is for them. So the the workbook offers that, and there's also um, a lot of opportunity for them to explore the relationship with movement through certain questionnaires. And um, I incorporate the body perception questionnaire from Stephen Porges, and there's journaling opportunities, and it's just really a good resource for them to use both in and outside the group. And I'm offering it for anyone that's interested in it. I'm happy to provide that as a resource to clinicians or clients. So um, if you have a resources um, place where you want to add that in, I'd be happy to share that. Yeah. It's, it's a really, it's a really beautiful book. Can you say what motivated you to write the book? You obviously have your own story. So how much did that influence you writing the book or what you were seeing in the field? It's interesting. So the idea came to me when I was in Shavasana after yoga, and it was in one of the, uh, my, I think it was during my teacher training. And I had this moment where I just felt such gratitude for being in this space where I felt so connected to my body and that movement had become such a joyful thing in my life. And I was reflecting back to early 2000s, I think it was 2005 when I did the, I used to work um, in some health clubs and I was asked to do a presentation. I was also working in an eating disorder program at the time, I was asked to do a presentation on of exercise as it presented in the health club environment. So I, I did something at a local organization and then at an international organization uh, with the audience was fitness professionals and people that manage health clubs. And I did a lot of research at the time and realized, wow, this is a real issue. And it, it shows up a lot in the fitness industry. And then I kept thinking through the years, like, okay, someone's going to put something together. Like someone's going to put a resource together to help this, help with this particular issue. Like it is an issue, we know it's an issue. And there was a lot of research to support it. There was a book hooked on exercise that really went into detail about uh, you know, disordered relationships with movement. And, and it's funny, cause I kept thinking, why, why hasn't anyone written a book on this? Why hasn't anyone done this? And then I, I just said, this, this light bulb went off and I was like, oh my gosh, I, that's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And, and I'm wondering if those tears of were when you were in Shavasana, those were tears of joy, expansion, excitement, you know, all, like all of that. And, and I, I, this is not where I anticipated going, but I, I want to start with Shavasana, like, and, and this is not where I planned on going at all, but talk about when clients, when, when people are able to stay still, what comes up for them? So there, there's different varieties of Shavasana. So I think the Shavasana that you find at the end of, for instance, and I'm not judging, I mean, I think power yoga has its place, but there are very active forms of yoga where there's an exhaustion that comes from it, right? And so the body is just exhausted at the end. And I think for some people, that's the only way they feel like they can rest, right? Was is in this exhausted place after really pushing their body through to its often beyond its limit. Whereas I think when it comes out of this real deep connection with your body and, and breath and movement, there's this, um, this unity where it just, it's it, it, where as formerly there may have been the separation of your observing your body or there's a lot of um, narrative going on in the head. Um, 
for many people though, that can be a very scary experience. I'm not gonna lie. Um, people that have had trauma, people that are, are not comfortable going into the body, that can be a really scary place to be. So um, it, it can be, it can bring up a lot of emotion, you know, can, and I think that's important to acknowledge. And it's really important to gradually build that window of tolerance and, and to have the person recognize that, you know, that that's something that you will feel and to, to find safe, safe places to explore that. And that's what I'm seeing a lot in the iMove groups as well is this, um, that people enjoy being able to know that they're not, that they're welcome to come out of whatever we're doing at any time. And whereas if they're in a yoga class, they feel like they're kind of, um, some people have talked about being imprisoned. Like, I feel like I'm like, I'm stuck there and I'm stuck in this experience in my body and that's a really hard place to be. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, perspective and we think of you know yoga and shavasana as being really relaxing and blissful but it a lot comes up in that in that space that quiet space yeah i mean i i i don't do yoga very often although when i do there are particular poses that i get tearful shavasana i get tearful um it it is a powerful place to be and Maybe one of the reasons why I get tearful is my level of compassion that I have for myself now after being fully recovered from an eating disorder and the ability to drop in to relaxation. I, I Sometimes I think they're tears of gratitude. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you mentioned that because I've had a client share that you know, and I think I even shared it in the book that, you know, the first few times they went to yoga because it was the only thing that was allowed. Um, it felt it felt that there were tears of like, how can I let this happen to my body? How can I let go like this? How can I not be moving more? How can I be eating more food? And, and then there was a moment where there was something that transformed and they had this moment of, of tears of regret of like, oh my gosh, how could I have done that to my body? It was a shift and, you know, there was tears, but they were much different tears. Uh, so I think that is important and that's all, that's all part of the growth, right? It's all the, and I think there's, I often feel that, that same gratitude you're describing um, in those moments and not just even in Shavasana, but other forms of movement when I'm really connected to my breath or I'm able to kind of get into the rhythmicity of it and not be so, um, have my, my brain going and wondering how many calories I'm burning or how, if I'm meeting that, that goal, that external goal I've created. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So I normally am a lot more linear in my interviewing and I apologize. I didn't mean to jump right into this and then I want to go back, but now I sort of want to go back to where I originally wanted to start, which was, I think it's in the very beginning of the book. You talk about the difference between healthy exercise and compulsive exercise. I'm wondering if you can share that with listeners and talk about your experience, how you went from healthy to compulsive back down to healthy. How did it play out for you? And, and what were the tools that you Absolutely. used? Absolutely. So healthy exercise is something that fits around our life, right? It's scheduled around our life. It's something that in, in enhances energy, improves mood, makes me feel energized after we're, we've done it. So we have energy for other areas of our life. It's something that is joyful and is, is connected to the, to the cues we're getting from our, from our body. And it respects the body's natural limits. Whereas compulsive exercise is quite opposite in that it's um, life tends to be scheduled around it. You know, people will forego social events and family get togethers and other things they enjoy 
because they need to get exercise in. It feels compulsory and it's it's punishment driven. Um, whereas I forgot to mention healthy exercise is often more passion driven. So if someone's like an athlete and they really, or they really love their sport, um, but compulsive exercise is much more punishment driven. Like it's kind of making up for something or there's something wrong with uh, them that they need to punish themselves for. Um, and I'm, I'm saying them and I'm, I'm kind of separating myself, but that, but I mean, in like that's, that, that's definitely how I felt too. There was a punishment to that, the movement. Uh, and then there's, uh, it doesn't respect the body's limits. So there's a lot of times there's pushing past injury and pain and uh, not respecting what the body's, the messages the body's sending uh, around its desire for, for limits. And it's kind of going past the, what we know to be um, like, you know, kind of the, the, the principles of, of fitness improvement, which are like, you know, tolerant, building up a tolerance and um, endurance and, you know, kind of knowing that you have to do that gradually. It just doesn't even take that into consideration. There's also a level of dysregulation when somebody is compulsively exercising. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, they're not able to when they had it already planned in their mental schedule that and that's the, another big i think hallmark difference which is somebody who uses exercise in a healthy way yeah they could be disappointed if they if they don't get their yoga in or their run in or swim and life continues on somebody who's using it compulsively especially in an eating disorder the level of dysregulation for the inability to do it absolutely Woo! absolutely you know and that that brings up an, an important point there are psychological side effects to the compulsive exercise which are the increased anxiety and depression and one of the biggest challenges in in stopping or decreasing the exercise is the withdrawal that you just described where when they don't get it in there is an increased pain in the body physical and physiological and, and psychological so many times people will need to add in medication as they start to taper off of the exercise because it, it is a natural um endorphins are a natural opiate they 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 take pain away in many many forms so it makes a lot of sense and so for me, you know, I, um, you had asked about my own experience and I, you know, was always active from an early age. I was naturally athletic and, and excelled at sports and that was a part of my identity. And actually I think it was a preserving part of my identity through the eating disorder. Um, one thing that I kept re reflecting back to, like I need to take care of my body as an athlete. So it was almost like one of those things that kind of kept me clued in, cued into my recovery. But, um, but there was a point, so there was, um, and I allude to it in my, in my book, there was some trauma in my family and I internalized that. And I think I did definitely do, as a result, develop this, you know, kind of um, avoidant coping style and kind of kept things in. Um, and that's really where the eating disorder evolved from. And the, um, I remember feeling uh, like, you know, as I was holding all this emotion in, there was, it just, it was really uncomfortable in my body. So I had a desire to, to, you know, get that out. And it was like running or movement gave me that freedom or helped me um, just relieve that discomfort, at least to some extent. And so I remember feeling really, um, it would be really overwhelming if I couldn't get it in because I needed that relief or I thought I needed it. I didn't have other, other tools to use at the time. So I think that through the process of, of a lot of therapy and um, a lot of like, you know, finding other coping skills, finding mindfulness, um, meditation, um, finding other tools I could use to regulate and I'm um, starting to talk about all the stuff that had happened in my life and really um, emote in a different way and use my, my relationships in a different way. 
I, I did start to trans, you know, move into a much healthier relationship, both with food and my body. And the movement was probably more of the last thing to go because I don't think I even recognized it was an issue. I think it was so normalized in the culture and something that wasn't really, I didn't think to bring up in, in, in my work and my, at the time my clinicians weren't bringing it up. And so I, um, it, it wasn't until I started doing some yoga that I, and, and moving differently that I started to realize, oh, wow, this feels different. And it was like that last frontier of my recovery where I really started to become embodied. And I think that that was like the missing link. And I, it was really what enabled me to fully recover. I often talk about that for me, you know, there's always like the question, like, how do you define being recovered and what are indicators? And I, I use my own personal definition, which applies to me. And, you know, one of them, and, and there's little markers, but one of them is nothing makes me happier than say on a Sunday morning, if my body is tired to lay in my bed and feel my sheets and maybe prop my head up and look like, like that's my, that's my movement. It's a different kind of movement. And I, I never used to be able to do that. I remember Amy 30 years ago when I was in my eating disorder, when I was, I was sort of coming out of it. And, you know, it's interesting. Exercise often does, or at least in my experience, was still a strong symptom that I had and towards the end. And you're right, because it's so normalized in culture, unless you're in treatment, it doesn't always get addressed. And I didn't understand how somebody could have a full-time job because it would get in the way of how much and when I exercised. I couldn't understand how do people do that? That's how much exercise can be a compulsive component that can really take away relationships, job opportunities. It's it's unbelievable. And you mentioned something I wanted to go back to. So the 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 fact that in treatment it often becomes like a non-factor, right? So when people go into treatment, they're not exercising compulsively. And um, so there is this all or nothing, right? And then and then I think a lot of times in an outpatient setting, I'm, what I'm hearing from clinicians is they feel very comfortable doing the behavioral work and setting limits. And, and, you know, a lot of times it's like, okay, you get to walk a half an hour a day or maybe, and maybe take a day off. But there's not a lot of work done in that. There's like a gap where there's like, well, how do we change the quality of the relationship with movement? How do we help people navigate from this place where like, all right, I'm going to get that half an hour and I'm going to walk as fast as possible, but I'm going to be completely completely disconnected from my body doing it. How do we get them into that next, you know, that next place? And so I think that's where um, I'm hoping this, this helps fill a gap where you can, you know, do some of this experiential work with, with folks and um, just, you know, kind of helping them experience being embodied, even just for small windows of time so that they can start to build up that, that ability and start to, to feel that when they're in, you know, in movement or and that goes back to it it is it is all integrated all of the work the behavioral work the cognitive work because as you were saying often the the function of the exercise is because especially clients with trauma when they slow down they feel their body and that is very frightening or if they slow down 
they're used to being hypervigilant and always on the go to sort of avoid or stay away perceived danger, which came from original danger. You know, there's so many levels of complexity, which is why everything has to be addressed. I don't know if you have anything to say about that or. I, I can really relate to that. And I, you know, I, one of the things I share in my book, which was so fascinating, I, I took part in this uh, SMART training, which stands for sensory motor arousal treatment. And it's, it, there, it's, it's really um, geared towards kids who have had tr- complex trauma. However, I've talked to the people that, that developed this program and they're actually testing it out in adults now too with trauma, which I think is fascinating. But the whole idea is, so, so in, this, in this program, they had us um, pair up and we had to do this modeling of, of whatever movement felt good in our body. And then the other person would would, would do something. And it was so fascinating to me because I'm one of those people that, you know, I can relate to that hypervigilance around, um, you know, trauma and kind of the, the, the desire or the impulse to move fast and do things fast. And it was really interesting to see how uncomfortable I started to become when we really slowed down. It felt really intimate. And I was like, I don't know this person. And, you know, and it was interesting just to have that in vivo experience. And that's kind of what we noticed coming up in these in the movement groups is people will have those experiences in their body and be able to reflect on them. And it's so powerful. Um, but I, but I, that's a huge piece. It's just the like kind of giving them these little pieces of discomfort in their body and helping them become curious and not judge them. Like that's not bad. It's just, let's just be curious about what's coming up and what information is this, is your body sending you right now? And that's really a really helpful skill for people to hone. I also think that what I found interesting, and, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing about what, again, paraphrasing, so I'm going to ask you to jump yeah, in, yeah. but when you start your groups, you have the clients, from what I remember, shaking their body out, like wrap, slapping their arms against, not in, a, not in a hard way, but like, you know, like shaking out your arms and and. We, I think we forget that we can move our bodies to release negative energy in ways that don't have to hurt our bodies. And I even, when I was reading it, I stood up and I, I started shaking my arms out and turning my body. And I was like, oh God, that feels incredible. And it's so, again, it's creating new brain grooves that it's not that you can't move. It's how you're moving. Are you moving intentionally for to, to, to soothe? Are you moving to run away? And then you need to keep doing it because it never- You've got to run too, right? Yep. 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 <laughs> so no, I wanted to speak to that because I think it's a really important piece of, of, of what the iMove groups do is that we, we bring in these other ways to um, bring on that, that rest and digest or parasympathetic response and get people out of that sympathetic state. So they have these tools. A lot of people will find that like there's a certain breathing technique that they gravitate to, or maybe it's the shaking, or maybe it's something like we do. Sometimes we'll bring in some um, acupressure, you know, we'll, you know, massage a certain point in the foot and they find it. It's just such an easy thing that they can do. And, and they see, it's almost like bio biofeedback. They see that they have, that they can have this impact on their system and it doesn't have to be this, you know, they don't have to respond to the sympathetic um, activation through exhausting their body to get to that point where they can rest. They can actually do these things that are a lot less harmful. Not that, that not that pushing your body is always harmful, but you know, but if, if you're feeling really 
exhausted from stress already, it's probably not like the, I don't know, the most um, loving thing to do to go for a long run um, to further exhaust yourself, or maybe it's not fitting into your day. And uh, so I think there's a lot of, it's giving people alternatives to use to help, help, um, you know, help really get to know their nervous system and, and, and work with it. How do you work with professional athletes? Because that's a different level. I don't even know if I, yeah. if I want to, I yeah. don't want to use that word, but you know, there's professional athletes still push it too far. And, and I don't mean just like no pain, no gain. I mean, like really, so speak a little to that if you can. You know, I think that's really an in interesting point. Um, so, so far I have not, I'll be completely honest, have not worked with any elite athlete, athletes through the iMove program. I have uh, individually and um, be, partly because they just, they did, there's not a lot of time, right, to, uh, to, to devote to this kind of a, a, of a group. Uh, but what I will say is that the athletes are at a higher risk for compulsive exercise, partly because it's normalized, as we talked about, and it's and it and it kind of falls into this um, this guise of training and can be missed. Um, but there's a greater risk as someone increases their level of competition. So as someone becomes an elite athlete, they're at a higher risk, and partly because it becomes isolating up there, right? Like all of a sudden, this is what their what their life is all about, and um, I think it can become pretty. There's a lot of pressure, and I think as we've we saw in the Olympics this past um, summer, athletes struggle with mental health issues too. But a lot of times they don't feel like it's okay to talk about it. So I think um, what I would say is 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 really some of the same mind body embodiment work would be really relevant so that they can start to read get like clued into their body because we have to remember that sometimes what can happen is because the person is so highly trained and. We know about the neurobiology of exercise and, and it, that it dulls pain and it dulls that, you know, they get so used to experiencing pain in the body too, or, or like, you know, that natural kind of muscle, muscle tension or um, uh, pain that you might feel through training. So it's, it's a different, their tolerance for pain might be higher. There's a lot of different variables. So helping them like kind of really unpack um, where their relationship with exercise is in the context of being an athlete and um, how, what I think that a really good sign is how are they caring for their body when their body is not at full, you know, operating at full capacity, if there's an injury or there's, um, or that could even be mental, right? If they're, if they're not feeling, you know, if they feel like they need to take some time off for mental reasons, is that something that they're able to do? Uh, I think that those are all really good questions. And what I will say is I enjoy working with athletes because I feel like they're, they're all the, the same qualities that make them a great athlete can really make them motivated and driven in their recovery as well. Well, that's where we talk about are your traits as an asset or a liability. And so what becomes a liability in the eating disorder can be your greatest asset in the recovery process and in your ongoing life. And it's, it's wonderful. I mean, basically saying you are who you are. I'm not trying to take parts of you out. I'm just trying to redirect them so they're no longer harmful to self and you're using them in a different way. There's something I was going to say, and forgive me, Amy, I do this all the time. I forgot it will come back to me, everyone. This one, this one's not going right now, but anyway, so what was it like writing the book and working with clients that are struggling with exercise addiction or compulsion where 
where you struggled with it and does anything ever come up for you or did the book bring up any, you know, triggering moments? I will say, to be honest with you, writing chapter two, where I share my story was hard. I had to revisit that time during my adolescence that was really turbulent and painful. And uh, that was emotional and hard. And I'm so glad I had support through that process. Uh, I will say, um, I think writing the book helped pull pieces together in a more succinct way and help and it, and it prompted me to bring some of these things into my work with clients and my my own individual work um and I just felt so grateful to be able to say oh my gosh like it took me 15 20 years to like learn all this stuff and then like really piece out things that are helpful for this population and now I get to put it all in this nice package and and and, and give it to others you know that was what I was really excited about and through the writing process. But yeah, it was, I, I'm not gonna lie, it was it was emotional. And um, and there's part of me that kind of looks back and I'm like, oh, I wish we knew more about this then, or I wish I had some of these resources earlier on. Um, so well, like a lot of compassion for that adolescent self. Yeah, yeah. You you bring up a really great metaphor, which I I love and and you know I'm I'm happy to read the whole thing on the on the air, but I'm wondering if you could say it sort of narrow it down. One of the things that I notice with clients that have compulsive exercising is it's always like go 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 go. The the faster I get there, wherever there is, <laughs> you know, the better it's going to be, and and all this stuff. And you talk about the metaphor of the two men in the forest mm -hmm. axing down trees. Can you share a little bit about that? Because that was great. That last sentence, I was like, oh, I love Yeah, the Buddhist uh, parable, I'm not going to remember all of it now, but there's these two, um, uh, I, I can't remember if they're brothers or friends, but they're both, they're in the woods chopping down, chopping wood. And, um, and one of the men would stop periodically. The other one's like chopping, 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 chopping really fast, just chopping away. He's like, well, how is this guy going and like taking all these breaks? And meanwhile, and for, yeah. forgive me for interrupting yeah, and I apologize, okay. but isn't, wasn't the one that continued chopping while the other one was taking breaks, thinking to himself, well, I'm going to chop more wood than this. Yes, one. exactly. That, yeah. And it, it ended up not being the case. In fact, the person that um, was taking the breaks ended up chopping down more wood. And the reason was because when he was taking these breaks, he was sharpening his ax. So I really love that. And I think I actually had that experience this morning where I was feeling like I, I meditated and I went for a nice walk and all these ideas came up. Like I had all this like creative energy and I realized one of the things that I've really learned about myself is that I need to come into complete mental rest for any creativity to evolve. Like that's where the create creativity and manifesting comes from. It has to be like, and I think about how much time I spent like with monkey brain and like, you know, my brain not really doing, able to do any of that creative thinking because it was so focused on, well, probably getting fed first and foremost. Um, and so that I'm, I really feel grateful for as well. Um, sharpening the ax is a really important metaphor for all of us to think about. It's, it's important for everybody in life because, again, often, I don't even think this applies just to eating disorders. It is mm -hmm. everyone. The, the more we do, the harder we work, the faster, the longer the hours, the better we'd be. And for me as well, Amy, it took me years to be able to recognize I, I hit a wall. And when I hit it, 
I hit it. There is no pushing past it anymore. And I used to say, oh, I'll work for another hour or I'll, I'll do this. The more I get done tonight, then the less I have to do tomorrow. And it finally hit me where I'm like, no, I, once I realize that I I've done enough and I quiet down for the night and I allow myself to rest or I allow myself to talk to others, like do other things. Then I wake up in the morning, I'm refreshed, I'm rejuvenated. My mind is very clear. And so I, I just loved that metaphor. And it does apply with compulsive exercise. It applies with eating disorders and it applies with our culture. More is better. Getting there faster is better. It's not the case. Yeah. There's a tendency to be pushed to do more, do more, do more. And um, I, I, yeah, that's why I actually really, um, I really love yin yoga because it brings in this nice balance to yang, the yang energy that we, (laughs) we tend to embody as a culture. And um, there's a, I wish I could remember right now, but there's one of my favorite quotes by Latsu. Um, It's all about like how we kind of spend all this time searching outside for the answers and like, well, at the end of the day, like the, the, the best thing to do is to be like, you know, that kind of ends up with that, like kind of the idea that like when we really have so much inside and if we can spend time with ourselves and really quiet and give ourselves that chance to rest that um, different, it's a different quality of energy, but there's a lot of, um, it can be very productive in a different kind of way. Right. Um, I've also, what I, what I've worked with, with clients is when clients say, but I don't have anything inside. I don't have anything that I'm proud of, that I'm happy about, that I like about myself. So I have to use compulsive exercise and the eating disorder. So it feels like something they they can achieve and do and it's concrete. Mm -hmm. And what I often say to them is you keep running away from yourself. So you're not filling yourself. You're right. You're right. And this is part of the uncomfortable process of, of recovery which is giving up a little bit of the behaviors and looking in a little inside a little and figuring out who you are, strengthening those internal parts of self. I don't know if you've ever noticed that clients, you know, if you've experienced that with clients or anything similar. You know, someone came to mind, um, someone that I've I've, I've worked with during the pandemic and um, the response that this individual had to the pandemic was to fill all the the empty space, all the downtime that had now, you know, become apparent living alone with, with, with exercise. So um, that, that all the time not spent at work was, was spent exercising or sleeping. And, and when you, we really start to talk about values and what, what, what they wanted in their life, they did want a family down the road. They did want to a relationship and maybe a different, you know, career path, but they weren't going to be getting to those things as long as they were continuing this pattern. And then, and interestingly, I've heard some people say that it's kind of nice to have an excuse not to spend time with family. So they, they, they actually feel like exercises is a, is a, is an acceptable excuse not to be like, maybe I'm training for this event, or if I tell my parents or my family, I'm, I'm, I'm exercising, we got to get my my, my, my workout in that that's okay. Um, and it, it, whereas I think that they, maybe they don't feel as comfortable setting the boundaries more directly. Um, and that was, that's an interesting kind of, uh, like, uh, 
component that's come up. And as we start, as you start to start talk about people with their, to people about their exercise, it's just interesting to see the themes and the different motivations they have for, for using it. What, it, when you said something about training, it made me think I have clients that I'm working with and I'm trying to navigate the idea that they're not nourished enough to be training for marathons. Mm-hmm. I'm getting a lot of that. How do you work with a client who's saying, but this is who I am. This is my passion. I love running. I love marathons and they're time sensitive. There's only certain times of the year. And, you know, it's complicated because what I try to do is say, you're right. Even more reason why you need to follow your meal plan and follow when the dietitian says increase on training days because it's time sensitive. You love it. So it doesn't, it doesn't always internalize. How do you, how do you work with so I think that sounds like a client that's still in a very resistant place with their relationship with movement and, and that there's something that they're gaining from that identity identity of being a marathon runner and accomplishing that marathon. And, and we can appreciate that, right? We want clients to find things outside of the, the eating disorder that, that do provide that sense of accomplishment. It's questionable, like, you know, if you know, for a lot of clients, like I've had, like I had thinking of one client in, um, in the iMove group that, that as part of her recovery sold a triathlon bike and was very, very um, emotional about that. But I think that there was a, a, an awareness that, oh, wow, like I, that was very connected to my eating disorder. And I think that there is a place where some people are just not quite aware that the, that whatever the, the, the exercise are engaging in, or um, in this case, like marathon running is connected to the eating disorder. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But one of the things I would say is like exploring, okay, what are you, what do you like about it? What do you like about the marathon running? And what, what feel, when does it feel, when does it feel good? And when does it, when, what was your favorite marathon? And kind of really getting into it, because what you might discover is that um, it feels a lot better when they're fueled, right? And um, certainly they're going to, they're going to perform better. They're going to, be less likely to injure their bodies if they are nourishing their bodies adequately. And then I would just kind of ask them like, okay, so what would happen if you did get injured? What if you got injured and you couldn't participate in the marathon? What might happen then? Like what are, I think you just want to always know that there are some other ways people can, things happen in life, right? So exercise might not always be an option. Like what's the, what's another option? Like you might, what are, if you didn't have this, would you be okay? Um, and I think that's a, that's a tricky one. It's a loaded question for a lot of people. And I do think that sometimes, unfortunately, with, with recovery, the identity as an athlete can get kind of, um, I don't know, can kind of take precedence. And like, we were really trying to preserve that. And I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't. I think we just need to be really mindful about, okay, well, at what cost, right? At what cost to this individual and their well-being? And as, you know, there's a lot of, I will say that for some people, there's a lot of um, foundational work around, you know, just doing the motivational piece and unpacking the issue and talking more about it before they, I think, really feel like they're in that action phase of, of shifting that relationship. Well, it, it also leads me to talk about the client, a client that I work with, who it actually helped with her recovery process getting into marathons, doing all these things. She's working with a sports dietitian. She follows the regime, you know, she follows what's what's being told of her, you know, the fueling, she understands. And 
She's creating relationships. She's in running groups. So this is where you see that it's more than just the the running or the calories or whatnot. She's created a community. She goes to to races now and they all know each other. And then they go out for brunch after the race. And, you know, so there are times when like anything in life, anything we're just talking about assets and liabilities. It's it's not always somebody that's trying to recover from an eating disorder absolutely cannot do this. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think it's very, very important that we recognize that because otherwise people will be terrified to come in to, to get treatment. Yeah, no. And I think you make a really good point that there is a lot of opportunity to build community and connection. And um, there is a lot of research that supports that movement during, even like during recovery can be really valuable. There's um, the safe exercise at every stage um, document that was put together by some people in the, in the field that is really valuable. And just to, I think that, Kind of, I think it's the quality of that relationship that we want to look like, look at more than anything. Um, and like, what are the, what are the red flags that this might be really connected to the eating disorder versus something that's really adaptive and enhancing? You came up with some some really great, or you, I don't know if you came up with them or if you just put them in the yeah. book. <laughs> wow, Amy, you created these incredible questionnaires about how to assess. If X, like, what are what are some of the key components that that you want clients to ask themselves or people? I don't know why I keep calling them clients. I yeah, think. no, I think um, so. Like the biggest thing is like you know um, what kind of what kind of exercise are you drawn to and why? What do you like about it? Um, what um, you know? How often are you exercising and with whom? What environments do you find um, yourself exercising in and and how do the, how do those feel for you? Um, you know, what would it be like to take a day off? What it, would it be like to take a week off? Um, how does it feel to take a day off? You know, what do you do with your time on a day off? Um, you know, just to kind of understand, like, you know, I actually ask people, have you ever put off having a surgery because you knew you wouldn't be able to move after the surgery? Or have you ever exercised past injury or during while you're ill? Um, have you ever exercised to the point where you really um, felt like you were going to lose, lose consciousness or where you um, hadn't been nourished enough and felt like your body was screaming at you to stop? Um, those, you know, those are questions just to kind of really understand where they're at and like what, how they're, de- like how they determine what they should be doing for exercise. So there's a lot of conversation around like what counts that comes up a lot, like you know, and a lot of people say the stuff we're doing in the movement group is like movement and that doesn't count towards their exercise plan. And so we talk a lot about how do you figure that out? Like what counts? Um, yeah. I also, on on the other side of, you know, first saying that like not all exercise is um, in, indicative of the eating disorder. I also, when I used to run residential programs, I used to have to say to clients, your pacing right now is exercise. And I'm not as a punishment, but as a natural consequence, you're not going on your next walk because you've already, you already got your movement Mm -hmm. and clients would get 
so upset and say, that's not right. It's very, very difficult. I couldn't sit still in my eating disorder. And most of it was because if I stopped, I would have realized how depressed and lonely and sad and anxious I was. And I didn't want to feel it, Amy. So I I was the one that always jumped up after dinner and I'll do the dishes and I'll clean everything up. And I couldn't relax. And so I think it's always really important. And, and I know clinicians and dietitians are aware of this, but really understanding the function. And if you think about it, I think there is a hypermobility we see, particularly with restrictive disorders. And um, there's a function for that. And, and one of it, one of them is the body's attempt to keep the body warm, right? And then the other one is, I think, because it's such a stressful state, right? The body is hungry and wants, wants food. So it's, it's, it's in that sympathetic state. So there's a tendency to want to, to move fast um, because when we're, when we're in a starved state, the body wants to do whatever it needs to do to get to the food. So I think there is that kind of almost, it's almost seems like it's not um, intentional. It's almost like kind of like, it's like unconscious on some level. And I think that, but we, but it's, it's really wonderful to see through treatment. And I had that experience in residential where you see people's nervous systems come back on board, right? And they start to calm, slow down and calm down when they're, when they're getting re-nourished. And, and I agree though, like that point about having a hard time being still in the body. And that was a challenge for me too. I remember many, many, many times just kind of having a hard time just sitting on the couch. I appreciate that now too. I can sit the whole day on the couch if I want with my dog in my lap and just TV and like just really fully relaxing and not doing anything. That's a, that's a huge part of benefit of recovery. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. Are you kidding me? I love it. I love it. And, you know, and, and this is, might sound like it's coming from a different place, but it, it also just reminded me, you know, it's so funny. Sometimes when I'm doing these interviews, I just have these flashbacks of when I was in my eating disorder and things like that. And I remember I used to go to the gym a lot because I was embarrassed that I was, I, I didn't connect with people. Like I didn't have a lot of connections so at least it gave me, it made me feel like I was doing something for the day. It made me feel productive. And you could be with other people there too, probably on some level. Yeah, I could be with other people and, and I had to get ready to go to the gym and then I had to drive to the gym and then I did the gym and then I came home from the gym and then I showered from the gym. And so that took up a big chunk of time, which otherwise I would have felt the idea that I was pretty lonely. That's a really good point. There's so much that goes into all of the behaviors, whether it's exercise or binging or purging or restricting. And when we really take a step back and and get curious out of it, out of it, I think that's the right word, but become <laughs> curious, it's pretty amazing what we what we come up with. I am literally just sitting here right now, seeing myself driving, doing all of it. That ritual. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was something was really soothing about that. It's so powerful. Amy, I am really sorry to say this, but we're going to have to start closing this interview down. But it has been so lovely, so lovely talking. Is there anything, before I ask your final question, is there anything that I didn't ask that you'd like to share with listeners? I think the only thing I would love to just share is that I think that while movement can be a way to escape the body, it's also just important to know to your point, Karen, around like kind of thinking things, you know, you know, as a strength, it's something you can use to really return home to your body too. I agree. Wonderful. 
So, Amy, I do have your final question, which is, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Oh, man, you didn't tell me I was going to get that one. <laughs> right? It's a good question. Gosh, I don't know. Um, so I actually have always been told I have a contagious laugh that you can hear it across the room. And it's one it like I was told when I was like in, in preschool, I would get that on my report cards. And it's still it's like I have this contagious laugh. And it's it's I that's certainly one thing too. And, um, and, and like, I like to have fun. Like I, I love to entertain. I love to like, you know, life of the party. I'm like someone that will do cartwheels and just have a lot of fun and play. I can, yeah. So there's a couple of things there. <laughs> they all sound great. And I'm glad we live in the same area and I'd like to come and be- cartwheels into the pool with me. <laughs> I mean, it sounds fantastic. Amy, thank you so much for being here. It has been wonderful having you on the show you for having me. I've really enjoyed our time. Fantastic. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit Karen Lewis edc.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another recovery bite. Thanks for listening.